0: Thanks for joining us from rainy Belgium. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> <In> Irish weather.
1: <laughs> we're mimicking your weather then, Martin. I won't place it on you, but <laughs> we're just mimicking your weather.
0: Thanks, thanks. Yeah. Uh, so I thought we were gonna start in the Midwest where you grew up, but then I found out last night that you actually were born in Germany. So I've known you for like I don't know eight years or something. So you always yes. learn something new when you're preparing for
1: these things. I think it's over. Even it's over ten now, Martin. Yes. If we go back to Barcelona, when I think that's where we first met. But yeah, I mean, some call me the the individual with no home, no land. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've been I've I've been wandering a bit, this, as the Aussies would say. So. Okay. Yeah, I born in Heidelberg. lived in Karlsruhe till I was five. With um, and and then moved back to Minneapolis, um, or to Minneapolis, and grew up in Minneapolis, west of Minneapolis. Yeah, and so really a Midwest, upper Midwest individual, you would say. And
0: that's trans. But- that translates to cold. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. And Martin, you know what cold means because you visited actually in the middle of the the winter at once.
0: I think at once. Yeah. Like I think yourself and John Brownlee are pretty good salespeople to convince myself and Jim to go out there in January. I think it was January. And the, the warmth of the people was only matched by the cold of the environment. I, I, really,
2: oh, I, didn't, gosh. I didn't
0: think I was going to make it. I was trying to get back to the hotel and uh, it was closed. The night porter wasn't there. And I really thought this could be the end for me. Like that must shape you like growing up in an environment like that must really yeah. make it tough, no?
1: Well, I think it brings character um, in, yeah, I mean, Minnesotan people are very active outdoors, so highly active, whether it's summer, winter, um, plenty of winter sports of, and I grew up playing ice hockey in the winter and football or soccer, not American football, but soccer uh, in the summer and fall. Um, but it it's in, it, and, and also the cross country skiing or downhill skiing yeah. can be done. So I think that also there, there's an element, a true Minnesotan says, thank goodness for the cold, it limits the population.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. So what, what age were you when you left that environment?
1: Well, I, I um, so I, I grew up, as I said, west of Minneapolis on Lake Minnetonka, which was a very uh, nice place to grow up, a, a very large lake. It's out where Prince is from for those that would... Uh, what?
2: No, I did not know this. I guess you <laughs> learn something every day.
1: <laughs> so yeah, actually Prince was only less than ten kilometers from where I, I grew up. Uh, his Paisley oh. Park and everything. Did um, you guys
2: hang out in the same bars and stuff?
1: Oh yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> I um, he, he 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 was quite an individual, but no, I didn't meet him meet up with him in bars and that kind of thing. But um, He's probably older
0: than you, Steve.
1: That's, that's... Yeah, exactly, Martin. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's... that's...
0: So, so you decided... Where did you go after that? You came to London, was it?
1: Well, actually, so I my education is Midwest as well. I went to Creighton, a small private um, university in bustle, bustling Omaha, Nebraska. So, so it's known for Warren Buffett and a few others, but um, and that's actually where I, I played soccer, uh, for, so Creighton was Division One, and um, we didn't have the luxury of flying as today, we traveled by bus, but then it was back to Minneapolis to, to uh, get into my career, and the first part of my career was in, actually, in telecom, <clears throat>
2: uh, or
1: technology, and I went through the deregulation of telecom and really saw the acceleration of, of the whole space explode and was with a company that went from two and a, or six, 450 million to two and a half billion in six years. Wow. So i it was really massive growth and I had, I was doing my masters. So I a masters in international management instead of an MBA, MIM, um, because I wanted a broader focus. And then with that company, I was, uh, had the opportunity, they made an acquisition in Israel, of a NASDAQ listed company to integrate that. And so I went to Israel after Minneapolis and spent two to three years in Israel. And you like it? Uh, I found it a fascinating experience in country. I mean, such a small country having so much geographical things packed into it. But then aside from that, I was there with the boom of telecom and the technology. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm not a technologist by training. Um, nor am I do I have a medical background. Um, but the element of getting deep into technology, you can't avoid it in Israel. If you don't know a bit about it, you're not having a conversation. So. <laughs>
2: right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and fast, fast forward like a couple of decades and today, again, Israel is like a hot spot for innovation and you know, you hear of so many new technologies actually coming out from it, so what you're saying is probably, it's continued
1: on. Yeah, and, and I was really in what they called the Israeli Silicon Valley, which was Herzliya Petuah, um, okay. which is right outside of Tel Aviv. Right. Of course, it's all of Israel is a startup bed today. Um, but that was a, f- a fantastic experience because they had eight to ten startups. And um, one of them, we you know, I got involved with all of them. And what, what are we going to do with this? Okay. One of them IPO'd and a couple more trades sold. Um, so that was, it was quite an experience at that time. And then from that, I, you know, I had entrepreneurs coming to me. What, would you, what should I do with this business? And I'm thinking, well, I have a lot of theory. I have a lot of ideas, but I've never gone and built a company. So um, I thought, okay. Uh, and I wasn't ready to go back to Minneapolis. And I had the opportunity to join some people to raise money in London to start a, uh, a new company. So I was in London for 18 months, two years, raising money from Whitney, um, which is an East Coast VC, one of the oldest. Yeah. And we raised um, significant, we raised uh, uh, quite a bit of money that they, well, they committed to. And we headquartered it in the Netherlands, the company, it was a broadband via satellite service provider company. And in four years, we uh, built up the, the network, the company, with 120 people, um, and launched it into those European markets that didn't have broadband. So it was the UK, it was uh, parts of France, Spain, northern Italy, so on and so forth.
0: Steve, this was this was what the early nineties was it? it the,
1: this was around 2001, the end of the telecom area there so 2000 2001 well i was in london from yeah 2000 period the millennia and raising money at that time and so
0: the dot com com bust had just happened and then there was a kind of second bust which was around telco right it was kind of two separate
1: you, you've nailed it Martin very I'm impressive <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm yeah not everybody uh, remembers or recalls that but that's exactly right and we raised right at the end of the, the fallout from that okay. um, and it was a basis of they really wanted mm-hmm. to have a service provider play and all valuations were too high and decided to go forth and it, I mean Whitney's is sizable they have a billion funds so they have to deploy. Mm-hmm significant capital at that time that was a fund size so we were one of those and unfortunately for all of us it wasn't an enormous success but my highest learning ever um and really a, a pool of money does not amount to success let's put right. it that way um, yeah. but it it was uh it did get to market it did um you know was trade sold it just didn't return money for all parties and then I had a an idea to think. Well, okay, I'll go back into the entrepreneurial gig, and I'll do alternative energy. Uh, but I was a bit ahead of my time. Everybody, oil was thirty dollars a barrel, somewhere yeah. similar to today.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> today, um, but nobody thought that was such a great idea at that price. Um, and climate change wasn't being discussed. So mm-hmm. I actually, that's the. Th- at that time joined Phillips where they wanted to build up corporate venturing and they wanted somebody that had investor experience as well as entrepreneurial experience. And so I, you know, in the end at Martin, this is where your, our past connected, but I ran Phillips um, lifestyle venturing Mm. uh, part and uh, did that for six years and made 18 investments and several spin outs and spin ups but it's really where I got involved in health yeah. and the interconnected in health.
0: I want to dig into that a little bit. So I think we met at, it was a mobile world Congress thing in Barcelona. I remember they, they, they said there was a dinner, but there was no dinner. <laughs> it was like, I think it was like a, one cocktail sausage for, for 10 people. <laughs> so we ended up like not knowing this group of people who didn't know each other ended up saying, okay, we better figure out how, how to get dinner somewhere. And that's where we, we met. And as you said about uh, 10 years ago, and you were in the tick of Philips at the time. Yeah. Uh, and I was in IBM. And so yeah. we were kind of grappling with that challenge of like big old successful companies trying to innovate. And, you know, it's very easy to do some PowerPoint. It's very hard to change these organizations. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about, like, I would be a little bit skeptical that large companies can truly innovate with a very, with a few exceptions. So, so tell us a little bit about um, kind of your perspective on...
1: Yeah, I think, you know, corporate venturing goes in waves um, and it, it's always driven through a CEO who comes in or the necessity to try to get closer to what is new and disruptive um, on that basis. But disrupting internally is not the way large organizations are set up to operate and so you know at least in Phillips they they really had it set out on the side and and made the drive to do it but I think you know what I find is large organizations do innovate but it's 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 the incremental innovation that right. gets done right. um it's very difficult to bring anything disruptive or you get back into will this really work you know oh what about our brand all the other aspects and so I think anything that's truly disruptive um, either needs to be highly skunk worked yeah. <laughs> and protected you know, and, and <laughs> protected in, in set in the corner yeah or really you know it's outside and yeah. you know I I it is there's too many factors that come into play in trying to do anything disruptive, um, and and also, really the um, stomach is not there for the ups and downs in the time period of yeah. of what true disruptive innovation has to go through. Yeah. So um, I think you know you have your deep experience in that area as well, and we've shared plenty of stories, but that's that's and I think that's really where the connection of large corporates needs to be to the smaller entities, yeah. but not from a controlling perspective, more from, you know, uh, a, investment support, but hands off, observing, yeah. um, not driving.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. I think that's a nice way of putting it. Like, I mean, incremental incremental innovation probably works, but when you start to do stuff that's really disruptive and you need to have a very strong stomach, it, it's, it's hard to do that within a kind of quarterly cycle. and. A, the corporate culture. And and so so you you decided um, Phillips went through a lot of change, like fundamentally a <laughs> uh, significant change. And and you decided then to go and kind of marry your experience as an investor and an entrepreneur and, and start yeah. Really I soon. mean
1: exactly. I I was in my career I've seen the technology utilized for the good. Um, and I really saw the convergence in, or what I, I call the middle space in health and in, you know, I don't use healthcare. Um, it's not because it's not important, but I, I think health encapsulates the broader perspective. If you really look at it from an individual perspective. Um, and so the element is having been in Phillips and seen the consumer individual side and the deep healthcare side, and really the, the space in between, um, that it's not really one or the other, but it's both, um, really, for me presented the opportunity and at this time it was what we talk about as digital health, as you well know Martin wasn't even Coined a phrase at that time.
0: Yeah, I was listening to your, your podcast with, with Eugene and Jim, and I should have said at the start our objective is to have a better uh, viewership than them. So that's our <laughs> no, <laughs> <let's>, <laughs> um, competition. But, uh, yeah, I'd forgotten that. I'd forgotten that we hadn't, we were still calling it health tech and kind of going back that way. And, and we then really connected around Skin Vision because we had yes. we had, I had, we had come across those guys in um, in Romania and Turkey, and then you had said, "Hey, this is interesting," and yourself and Eric were like keen to right exactly.
1: To- I, you know, for me, Skin Vision was very unique. Um, in Philips, I had done quite a bit of research and look uh, looking around skin, and from the perspective of different technologies, also you know the market so on and so forth and um, IBM was running the smart camps and and you had uh, skin vision which actually wasn't called skin vision at that time but skin vision out of Bucharest that's right and what were they I re- called? skin scan skin scan um, yeah. and so from that we really you know what enamored me was really the ubiquity that skin vision brings because one of the biggest issues when, if you're really trying to deliver broad uh, health to a population is enablers. And if you have to deploy additional hardware or technology, this really impacts the usability and scalability of people and, and accessibility to it. Yeah. Um, and I, that's one of the pro- big problems I saw within Philips. Um, and so seeing skin vision and the power of, of what you could do through the smartphone with software um, enamored me. And from that, we really then took it and uh, we brought it, we moved it to Amsterdam. um have done several clinical studies uh, since that time. And, and, you know, a lot of people say, well, apps. Well, if you look into an app, they're not really apps. They're pretty broad-based platforms and apps are the front end enabler to this, but um, you know, the, the, the whole backend, the whole platform being built around it and, and built up and now being offered in several markets. So, yeah, I mean, it's something that is, is occurred over time Um, is, is it's, I think it was late 2011 when we first spotted it from when you 2011, when, when uh, was out there. So, so
0: nine years, almost 10 years, right? And, 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 they, and they had something very interesting back then. It wasn't like they were starting from scratch. They had, an no. they had some really great engineers and some germs and stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah it was built up on science. Thank you for uh, bringing it back to the series. So it was built up with dermatologists, uh, mathematician, um, and the entrepreneurial computer side. And, you know, they they had 40,000 downloads already when we got involved with it. But this is going way back when, you know, the whole landscape, you would you would say, what is digital health? And there was nothing of any significance out there, right? So anything you touched, you would have to start building up. It's not where today investors say, where do you come in in digital health? <laughs> well, <laughs> and there wasn't an option then. You, you came in early um, and yeah. built. So, yeah.
2: Steve, ever since I've known you, obviously you've been involved with Skin Vision. So I guess why the interest in dermatology? Because you always speak really passionately about, you know, the challenges in in dermatology, and that's kind of how I've known you. But was this just a great idea? Like you said, you were enamored by it, and you just you know stuck with it. Or,
1: well, I think you know. Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. I think there's, there's two elements or a few elements to that. I think one, I had, I had looked into the space and really saw um, the opportunity of, you know, skin is, is something all individuals see. So it's not something hidden from them. And then the opportunity of bringing technology to help them. And the other aspect, of, uh, why skin vision in, in getting into it was uh, skin cancer. Then the awareness was maybe a bit lower, but it was significantly on the rise. And where is most skin cancer detected? It's detected by individuals. But then the element is is this really something I should be concerned about? Yes or no? Um, and do I really wanna take the time? to go in and you know, professionally get this taken care of. And perhaps it's a long time, so I, maybe I forget about it in, in the meantime. All these factors were coming forward. And you know, the ability to really have something that could support an individual and really helping them on the start of a journey to get something critical critically addressed um, was powerful. The other aspect is, um, the power of going after something quite deep and complex that you then could um, move to other skin disease areas off of this, because if you have gained trust around skin cancer, and specifically, I think we know melanoma and the high high risks around that, um, you know that through with multiple parties that uh, that gives you. Really, an avenue to be able to support or work in other skin. At. Granted, they're all different. I'm not trying to uh, put them all in the same basket, but you know, skin vision started with melanoma only, the most um, deadly, and now covers most all skin cancers from melanoma, BCC, SCC, and AK. So, um, with very high, high accuracy and, um, uh, around the solution.
0: Steve, it's been a long journey, and, and it's still going. You know, uh, has it has it been as slow as you thought, or did you did you expect when you signed the check nine years ago that, you know, what, what what's your kind of take on the length of time it takes to get these things to to break through in America?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great, really good question, Martin, and I don't know. There's any one particular answer to it. Um, you know, I think it takes, first of all, it's the depth of what you're trying to solve. How big is the problem?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, is one element that drives these things. And it takes really um, the entrepreneurial side of, of deep persistence. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, an uncanny drive to solve a problem and the patients, the investor patients, and, and partnering. To make that happen, but to your question, um, yeah, I think the timing of you know now we're we're living in an age where we're seeing digital health come alive, um, but it has been a journey, as you you stated, and a lot of reluctance from from multiple parties, um, and that's just due to change is difficult, you know. Yeah. I think it's down to when you really have large systems, we've discussed large companies and their ability to innovate. Yeah. Um, change is just very difficult and, um, and aligning multiple parties with this change is, is part of the challenge. So, you know, I did think the opportunity of what, you know, technology coming in and, and I use technology, but I really wanna emphasize science-based technology when it comes to health. So. Um, it's not just about technology, uh, because you're you're. It's the human side, and and how does this drive outcomes? So, the journey has been a bit longer than anticipated. On the other hand, you know, I think the real truth saying is the deeper the impact, you know, it does take the time. Yeah. So I think you have to be you have to be really res- res- residents. On the fact of the timing, these kind of things take. Yeah,
0: well, I think it's a credit to you and, and to Eric. Like, it, first of all, taking a bet so early, uh, and then secondly, sticking with it so, so long, and and also probably Shannon. I don't know if you know that, but but Steve and Eric were the first investors in Health Excel, so they wrote the very oh, first check. Um, did not know that. Yeah. Wow. And, and um, yeah, so I think it's a real tribute to take early bets and then stick with them. You know, it's, it, it takes yeah. a lot of guts. And uh, yeah. do you think now, Steve, that we're, you know, back going back to your telco days, do you think we're at the similar point where, you know, there's a wave now and after I, all the patients actually, we should start to see a bit of real significant movement?
1: Yeah, I think um, there is a wave now. And I think it's all about adoption, right? And, and the opening up of of, use of these different technologies and I think now you know on a on the front of of the adoption side it, the cat is out of the bag um, and we're not we're not going back of course I think we have to be careful with you know so much emphasis on digital health digital health it is part of health um, yeah. and so it is a tool in health and it isn't all about the technology and it isn't all about the, the, the science either. It's about how you get uh, people's needs met um, is really what it's about. And so I think we're moving forward on this front and the acceleration will come out. And I think if we fast forward 10 years, it's a very different discussion than looking back 10 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I always like to draw the analogy because of the telecom days, we actually I would question if we would be having this discussion in this form, um, right. or we would be carrying around smartphones yeah. if tel- if telecom and the computer science worlds didn't come together. Um, True. Right. So.
0: Totally.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and it's awesome. I think just based on everything you've said now, it makes complete sense, right? It's not you know, move fast, break things. You can't really do that in healthcare sometimes. And I think even I was gonna ask you, there's a significant emphasis on ROI in in financial terms um, that is expected out of startups in the space. And I think you've kind of showed how you need to make that investment over a long period of time because the returns will come, but they take their time. And I think if, if everybody were to think that way, I think we'd see a lot more success um, because that's the reality in healthcare, right? Nothing happens in one year or whatever. And if it is, then I probably need to question that as well.
1: No, I, I <laughs> mean,
0: here's a little bit different, but yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I think science, it's its the, there isn't, it's one of the more complex things. You're mixing technology, science, and people all in one. Yeah. Um, with with deep health, uh, health life. <laughs> so these things are, are complex. On the other hand, I think, it is an openness and willingness, you know, we've been thrust into this with the pandemic, which to be honest on, on one hand, I feel, I mean, it's great um, digital health or it's all moving now. That's fantastic. On the other hand, why did it take a pandemic to open the eyes? Because it's back to, there's a lot of people out there that need access to health or health care, And I believe in the power that this is really what digital health can open up the power of this access and really um, even getting into the social determinants of health and supporting that aspect much deeper, which brings a much more equalized basis to a human, one of the deepest human needs is health.
2: Yeah. totally.
0: Steve, you've you've kindly been involved as we've set up this future of skin health group uh, and along with Francesca and Robert and, and, and um, maybe for the folks who don't know, we're, we're hosting a series of these lunches to talk with patients who have eczema and psoriasis and talk to dermatologists and really try to understand it from their perspective. Um, so what, what did you, you've been in skin vision for almost 10 years. So what did, did anything new come out of that for you from those discussions or did it kind of reconfirm some of your, your existing understanding?
1: First of all, I think it's a, it's a great initiative because we need to get more education um, and awareness out there around the whole skin, uh, skin aspects on a broad platform. And so did anything unique come out or new? Yes, everything is this space and is evolving. I don't think, you know, you can ever know it all. And the biggest, I think the, the, the gap is bigger than I thought. To be honest,
0: Which um,
1: the gap of need, and that's not just on one side; it's on all sides. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, the the whole skin space uh, with dermatology in the deep health space is highly fragmented. And um, you know, it, it, it on one hand, you look at it from an investor perspective. Well, you say this lends itself to you know, high fragmentation, deep needs, a, a big opportunity. Um, but I, what's come out of this is is really the the needs of of stakeholders, at least on the individual side. In in as far as we've gone thus far, we have not gone into the insurers and in the broader broader aspects, but also on the the professional side with with the doctors. Um, that is, that gap is much broader. And and really, it comes from, I think, a deep element of where, you know, I need help. What can I trust? Um, And what can I utilize? Um, And it's, it's down to a fragmented element, where how does this all come together? And I think that's the initiative that's being put together doing more of this. um, Because yes, there are dermatology conferences and so on and so forth, but those aren't conferences with individuals or are they conferences with those the, the insurers or so on and so forth? So we don't have all the, the necessarily all the stakeholders to coming together, and that's what I think this is trying to provide, which is
0: yeah I, I, very I to the, uh, the patient session and you know, I think Anne asked the question, you know, did, did, did any of the physicians ever follow up with you afterwards? And they said no <laughs> you know so you think about that as like oh my god and ask the question about like where do you find information and you know really trying to put yourself in the shoes of the patient thinking about like their life and like, it was really fascinating to me like the and the, the complexity of it you know just the there's so many different parts to it um i mean i i didn't i didn't uh, attend the physician one or the dermatologist the dermatologist uh, der- excuse me dermatology one. Um, how did that go? What was, how did that, how did the clinicians compare to the patients?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it varies by geography on, on how they felt, but I think they, again, um, when, you, when, it, when the onion was peeled back, they feel that they cannot uh, do enough. So yeah. they don't have time. And specifically, you know, they're trying to deal with um, a skin issue where there may be other comorbidities that come out. And that was discussed a bit. And what about mental health? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's important. (laughs) I would maybe like to also be able to help this aspect, and that may be a driver of skin, the skin issue, but... (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it's not in the cards. And so yeah. here again, I think that was also asked, what would you trust or how do you bring, you know, how do you get, and there were some some elements brought forward in, in what would give them confidence and trust. And I think this is, is something we can share with the startup community yeah. um, that is really highly important because again, you can't have solutions that are just technology Um, detached from those that need to interact with it Um, and it is about trust and yet
2: yeah Yeah. I guess I mean would it be fair to say when you sit in both the sessions you can completely empathize with both sides and you can see why whatever exists is the way it is and it's so frustrating for both sides and there's no right and wrong so I guess how do we empower both sides to make them meet each other halfway
1: yeah you know I I guess for for PHS and 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 I, I take a step just back, we're a big believer in individual centric um, propositions, and and when you say that word, sometimes the professional f- uh, side feels it's to their exclusion. Right. But that that is not the case. Yeah. Um, it's really about. Isn't it better the the more. An indi- individual can share with you what's wrong with them in, in a trustworthy way, not from, this is what I researched, but it comes to them in a form that is trusted. So they can really support and act and interact, also interact the connection aspect, as opposed to you know, what we heard is the, the amounts of periods of time that go by without the digital connection or that interaction of data that can be so supportive in the in in, in the, the moments of need. Um, so yeah.
0: Okay. So I'm just I'm conscious of time. So there's a couple of other things I want to get into. Um, so Steve, you had you've had, you know, US, uh, UK, um, Israel. You've invested in companies in Europe and in, in the US. So as you look at those different markets, maybe. Maybe give us a quick sense of comparing Silicon Valley to Europe and Europe to Israel uh, in terms of investment, in terms of the types of entrepreneurs, just give the the, the viewers a kind of sense of how you think about those three different markets.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, first of all, investing all comes back to, and and you hear this, you've heard this from many people, but it is really about the people and the teams. So, and people are people and and they can be anywhere. Okay. Mm. So that's, that's the first element. I think it gets into a little bit, what drives some of the differences, is what markets are they trying to serve? Um, And where are they sitting in, you know, in trying to address that need? And from an Israel perspective, I'll start with that first, because we all know it's a smaller country. Um, They don't have a market, so they need to go outside for a market. Um, There's nothing really to look at at home. And so they start really with a global aspiration from the start. Um, When you get to the US, for those sitting in Silicon Valley, they're eyeing first uh, a fairly a large market, although, albeit we know it's not one market, the US, everybody likes to say one market. Yeah. There are quite some differences.
0: And also Um, a a huge pool of capital. I mean, really, it does change the game when, you know, you're expected to raise 10, 20 million versus in Europe or you're, you know, one or two if you're.
1: Well, now, yeah, I think this element you touched on gets into um, not just capital, but also investor mindset. Yeah. So right. if we use the term, and, and the term venture capital gets used in many different forms, but it has originally started out as at risk capital. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, really, supposed to be there to back, and, and maybe the thing and why Silicon Valley has gotten it, they've gone and really backed the large disruptive things that can change the world. Um, whether it's all in that same boat today, there's different firms and different discussions that could happen around that. But you know it, it takes it, it takes brilliant entrepreneurs with really tenacity and drive to go after it. but also it takes in, investors that really say, you know, here are the big opportunities and we're really willing to go for those. And if they hit, they hit so enormously big, right? And it's not so much as as Shandana was trying to say, what's, you know, I need to, I'm, I'm looking at my ROI today. Are you looking at, if you're truly leading and impacting a new market, I think you're gonna, we can measure returns, but if you've built a company right, you're gonna have pretty significant returns out of that. And so it's really a mindset of, are we, you know, are we setting out to really be a number one or, you know, a leader in this space mm-hmm. and make it happen, um, or is it simply building a company and it gets sold, which is also successful? I'm not trying to, to knock things, but you know, it's it's is that really what we're after, and that is, I think, um, it's a mindset that that really drives.
0: How do you think about your role as an investor, and how how to engage with the entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, I think that w- that's that's a deep one, Martin.
0: <laughs> me, but- I can give a perspective of what I've seen. So you you know you took a you took a bet on us eight years ago, or me eight years ago, and you know probably couldn't have asked for uh, someone who who would support you, but also understand that like they weren't driving the car that their job yeah. was. Hey, okay, I've seen, I've seen this road before and there's a, a sharp turn coming up here and there's a, there's a cliff. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. I think, that, you know, we, we really, and I really look at the aspect of, first of all, you really need to, it's all about trust with people and you need to say, gee, these are good people and I can work with these people. So, it's a little like Martin, if, if I call you on a Friday and you say, oh, Steve's calling and want to hang up, you know, it's that's not gonna work so well.
0: <laughs> not going um,
1: well. But, it, you know, and, and at the end of the day, it's it's not the investor's company. Um, no. It is because it takes people to build and somebody has to drive and the drivers are the entrepreneurs. You know, the captain of driving the ship is is the entrepreneur. And as an investor, you need to be uh, a huge partner, and a partner means bringing multiple things. If you have some network, but also just an emotional coach sometimes on the roller coaster, right? Um, you know, and sharing those elements of, and and maybe what's different is is if you have gone through building a company yourself, and then you say, well, we have uh, payroll for 120 people to make, huh? <laughs> How is this going to happen, you know, you, you understand some of the operational pain points at a deep level. I don't mean a superficial level. I mean, the deepest levels Yeah. and, and they then feel you can interrelate with, with yeah. that aspect, which I think is important. But, you know, you go back and you, 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 speak to many investors and different people and really great companies have been built because of an outstanding partnership. Yeah. And that's the bottom line.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wish we had more time. I'd love to get into bold, and I'd love to get into Pacifica yeah. and the whole bunch of things. But we are ju- we're over time as it is. But um, we always ask. Um, we, we, so thank you, Steve. Uh, it's been a it's been a lot of fun. Um, we always ask um, if you weren't doing this in another universe, if you weren't investing in digital health companies,
1: what would you be doing? Wow, I think I am doing what I really want to do. So this one is, is, is a yeah. challenging one, but.
0: There's a surfboard um,
1: behind you, so that might be a clue, is it? Well, is that no, your- not, not for me, it's my but, wife. Okay. My wife's uh, a huge windsurfer, so, um, and I'm, I'm not the, the professional one at it, she is. But anyway, um, I would have to say I've done, been also supporting innovation and entrepreneurship with uh, master students uh, in university and you know I think I would I would uh, do that more broadly perhaps um, okay. because I think enabling the next generation of entrepreneurs is is really powerful
0: okay, okay. brilliant that's a great answer and we should have we should have said this at the start but I, I didn't ask you how things are going in Belgium
1: well, it's been, yeah, as, as Ireland, I think we've had our, our mini lockdown or re-lockdown. And so restaurants are still closed, but, um, and it was only the supermarkets, but shops will, will open up uh, prior to Christmas here. But uh, generally speaking, I think um, not much different than other okay. other places. You learn to cope with where you're at and yeah. Yeah. um you know, well,
0: some of the some of the vaccines are being made in Belgium. Right. That's
1: correct. Yeah. yeah. Pfizer the yeah. Pfizer vaccine is made here. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and there is been a lot of work around the vaccines in Belgium itself. And actually, as I sit at home here because I can't get to Amsterdam so so easily. Or people don't want to meet. But I, I sit 10 kilometers from Berisa, uh, which is where Janssen Pharmaceutical, okay. one okay. of their big research areas yeah. is. So yeah. there's a lot nice. of work going on there.
2: Yeah. Excellent. Well, I also see the windsurfing um, board just behind you there. So there's a perfect close. Do you know there's a surfing board right next to you or behind you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I put it i
1: put it there just so people you know it, it makes them think a conversation of point a, yeah a conversation but also something warm especially i mean for martin who's visited minneapolis in january <laughs> february <laughs> this changes his, his mindset perhaps indeed, indeed yeah. thoughts
0: <laughs> of hawaii and stuff like that so Steve, exactly. hopefully, hopefully we're going to get to see you in 2021 where yeah. we're hopeful that the vaccine will be in place and we're hopeful that back end of the, you know, middle, back in the year, we'll be getting together like we used to do. So, uh, so listen, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. This has been
1: fantastic. Really enjoyable. Take
0: Thank care. You.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Bye Bye bye.